This is Media Business Matters, the podcast that explores why recent news in the media business matters to people who love media. This is Amanda Lotz. And I'm Alex Sintner. Welcome to our fourth show. Amanda, recently we've been exchanging a lot of articles interviewing or written by television executives. Yeah, there's been a lot in print lately that I've learned a lot from. Some of my favorites, and I'll include links to these on the podcast page at amandalotz.com, include a piece by Charlie Collier, who's the president of AMC and Sundance. He wrote the piece uh, covering changes in the television industry, and that one's on Redef. Alan Sepinwall has an interview with Netflix's Ted Sarandos, found on HitFix. Just about any interview with FX's John Landgraf. Or any TCA presentation of his. That's true. And and somewhat in a different vein, there's been a lot of coverage of Les Moonves in the news lately, particularly an International Business Times article on why CBS is the future of television no one saw coming, except Les Moonves. And that reminded me of the strategic and successful moves that Moonves has been making for the last two decades. As he rose up from running the CBS network to actually now running CBS Corporation. But what do you find interesting about these interviews and executive insight? Well, for someone who's been following changes in the television industry for about the last 15 years now, I think what's most exciting is the shift to perspectives that are are really looking forward. And I think in these interviews and in in Collier's uh, personal writing, for the first time in a long time, I I see television executives who are, are really defining their business and trying to redefine their business as instead of just trying to sort of plug holes in the dike, sort of, so to say, as the industry changed around them. It also reminds me of the earliest days of television programming. Um, For decades, William Paley ran CBS, and and Sarnoff was at NBC, and, and there was really a sense in that early history of the networks having an identity very much associated with the, the programmers and the executives who were running them. And for for the last, let's say, through the eight, for much of, let's say, the 90s through the 2000s, there's just was so much turnover on a regular basis that it's been difficult to have that kind of sense of stability or that sense of an identity between an identity uh, between an executive and a network or channel. And and that's starting to emerge again. I mean, it's also not a perfect rule. I mean, Paul Lee at ABC just fired after five and a half years last week as he was trying to build a brand of his own. But these men definitely do represent this sort of ideas for how television is changing and how they're really trying to grapple with it. But really, the, an important idea that you brought up to me and I really like for this podcast is you want to focus on the ideas, not the executives themselves. Right. These aren't people we know, and we don't have access to the things that they know. And so I'm going to leave the armchair quarterbacking of executive actions to somebody else. Hi. <laughs> Well, there's a lot of that out there. And there's also a lot that's going on or that goes into decisions that, that we don't know about. And I, I, I think that's the one thing that I have learned with age and time, and, and I want to be respectful of that. But regardless of that, within these articles, they, they reveal a lot about the depth of how today's executives are thinking about television. And I think that does give us a lot to work with in thinking about what's likely to come. And let's start out with Charlie Collier's self-author piece called The Waltons to Walter White, The Rise of Immersive Content. He takes off from the debate that that John Landgraf started about whether there's too much TV, but instead he lays out some reasons that there is so much great television. He talks about the technological changes, the cultural awakening to the human difference, a cultural shift away from institutional religion, 
the, the democratization of power and the emergence of television as art. Well, that's such a, that's a mouthful. Where do you want to begin? Well, I find it interesting that as an executive, he is looking at or including so many cultural shifts there, which I, I think would be more the terrain of, of the sociologist to take on. So of those, I'm, I'm most interested in him noting the emergence of television as art, as particularly relevant to questions about television and, and business. And actually, Collier frames this as a cultural shift as well. And, and that change has certainly transpired. I, I can't even begin to describe the difference in, in how television is talked about today as opposed to 20 years ago. And, and it's certainly the case that for a long time there was this sense of television being this bad object and that television content was you know, something that was mindless and, and, and not... Well, that was also a part of the a function of the programming at the time, right? Right. And so what I'd, what I'd call attention to there is, is this, why is it that television is now conceived as more artistic? And I think a lot of that has to do, and, and a lot of the change has to do with the way the business has changed. And so for what I'll call the network era, which is really the origin of television into the 1980s, sort of before cable. We're looking at like the 70s and 80s and early 80s. Well, no, I'm going to go back farther, oh. right? You know, like really much for, for television, for the bulk of television's existence, when it was built as a mass medium, you know, it, it was produced in a way that made it very difficult to focus on artistry. And also in the United States specifically, where it was built around advertising, um, it was really necessary. The focus was the advertiser. The advertiser was who was funding the programming. And that contributed a lot to what executives allowed to be done with the medium. And so what the changes in the last, let's say, 20 years at this point uh, that have allowed this artistry to emerge, I think are very tightly connected to changes in the business. They absolutely are. I mean, it, it's really connected with the rise of basic and premium cable in the ni- late 90s into the 2000s. So to, let, let's go into a little bit about that. What do you think kind of led to this change? Well, I think we start the story in many ways with HBO uh, in the late 1990s. And, and it's not like HBO came in to provide this change. And it's also important to note that HBO's first uh, original drama, Oz, debuted in 1997, really at the same time that basic cable or ad-supported cable was doing the same. That was within, um, Oz debuted just a couple months after La Femme Nikita did on, on USA. And what was going on at that moment of time that led cable into original production was a variety of shifts behind the scene, many related to increased competition. That's when satellite launched, and all of a sudden it was going to be possible to have hundreds of channels instead of just about 20 or 30. And so it became newly necessary for cable channels to have original programming instead of just airing old shows from broadcast networks and old movies if they wanted to stand out. Well, that was kind of the start of the fragmentation of television viewing, which is which has been happening for years and years and years now, and as more channels came in, there are more places where viewers can go. There are more. It's easier to tune away from, say, an episode of Seinfeld you've seen before. Right. So even though you know cable had been around seventies through the eighties, by the by the late nineteen eighties, half of Americans subscribed to cable. But it's really not until the late nineteen nineties that cable shows are offering 
a substantial amount of original programming that pulls the audience away, even in prime time. So I don't know, you say years and years, and so maybe this is the difference in our, our age perspective. <laughs> to me, it really isn't that long that this has been going on. I guess it's the difference of, I grew up in this age. Oh, and what an age it is to have grown up in. But what ha- what cable has allowed, and, and it took, importantly, you know, it took a good decade for for cable to figure this out for audiences to find shows on cable and to understand that there were differences in television forms other than the broadcast norms. But it allowed for much greater flexibility and variation in production processes, as well as business models, right? So HBO has that different business model, which is largely what has allowed it to be such an innovator. But the end result has been more diversity and and competition, even as we move into an era in which television is created and distributed by broadband by entities such as Netflix and Amazon and Hulu. Well, kind of the idea that we're getting at here is the idea of quote-unquote quality TV. The idea that TV um, is being viewed in kind of the same way that quality movies are. There's kind of this art to it. Um, When I recently talked about this uh, in a forum setting, a lot we talked about House of Cards, and we screened a piece of the first episode of House of Cards, and kind of looking at it from a critical lens, you know, it looks better than a lot of what TV used to look like maybe back in the 90s. It has real production value. They're taking time. They're bringing in, they're able to bring in feature people like David Fincher into the conversation. All right, so you just introduced a whole lot of things. I mean, so (laughs) yes, it looks better. Part of that is the transition from standard def to high def. Um, also, time has a lot to do with what things look like and money. And, so, and the ability to make better things for cheaper. Right. With the, with the advances in technology. Although also budgets increased exponentially through the late 1990s. So, I mean, House of Cards was at least, what, four or five million an episode? Roughly, right. So I think you have to keep that in check. Um, late 1990s network shows were coming in at around two million. So you know, that's not just inflation. The notion of quality, that's just never been a term I've really liked because it, it tends to, I think there's a way in which the audience gets implicated in that saying in a way that I've always been uncomfortable with. And we can talk about television from an aesthetic possession, um, perspective and, and talk about different features, which is not to say at the same time there's anything wrong with other kinds of television. I think we just have to understand the conditions in which it is made and and how those conditions, the budgets, uh, the way in which institutions support or don't support them, in in understanding how that leads certain kinds of content to be made. And and there's nothing wrong. There should be no guilty pleasures. If you really like a 1980s-style police procedural, more power to you. And as NCIS's ratings show every week, a lot of people like those. Right. And so I think that the important thing and what Collier is pointing out here is that it's now possible to make other kinds of television. And I think the thing that excites me is the opportunity that there are different ways to make television. There are different measures of success. And and all of that is creating uh, a greater diversity of content and types of content. And I think that's great for the business. It absolutely is. Now, let, let's move on to uh, Sepinwall, Alan Sepinwall's interview with Ted Sarandos. What did you find important in that interview? Well, since Netflix, gar- Netflix guards its data so closely, any insight from within the company is exciting to me. Sarandos revealed a f- key 
a few key pieces of strategy that, that offered me some new things to think about and, and, and even aspects of how Netflix has been operating that I haven't realized as, as a subscriber. Like? Well, he noted that one thing his execs pay attention to is what people watch within the first 24 hours after journey after joining. And so I think we can kind of think that think of that as what is motivating new subscribers to join the service. And he and not- maybe it could also be an indicator of if they're watching this, what will they watch in the future? If this is the first thing they're gearing towards, it's probably an indicator of their taste. Well, it's certainly going into the algorithm, right? Uh, and so and that it's increasingly original shows that they're watching. And and why that matters is that it, one, supports the strategy pivot that we've seen from Netflix in recent years, away from being a service that established itself first by teaching audiences, frankly, a new way of viewing and, and doing that by first offering them content that they were familiar with that Netflix licensed from the legacy television studios. And it also suggests the viability of Netflix, of what Netflix is doing. So what else is there in this article that stuck out? Well, Steppenwall asked about the lack of a Netflix brand. And Sarandos noted that as deeply intentional. And that the Netflix brand is about personalization. And I, and I think that's... that. So there's been this conversation about how Netflix doesn't have a brand and, and about how that's a bad thing. And, and I think this is something that we're seeing as a shift in strategy again from the cable era because the the late cable era if you will was very much about brand and specific narrow specificity but what we see with both HBO and with Netflix now as subscription services that are fairly broadly targeted that what they're trying to do is is have a big enough tent not for everyone in in the way that the broadcast networks tried to but, but a tent that at least in, provides spots for different subgroups. And so it's not the case that most subscribers are going to want to watch all of Netflix or even most of Netflix, but that within that personalized strategy, they are targeting some pretty distinctive tastes and sensibilities that are probably more likely to be willing to pay for content and maintain the subscription. I like to think of it like a buffet. There's there's a little bits of different food, and hopefully there's enough that everyone can grab something. Maybe it's a lot of that one particular thing, but everyone can find something for them within the Netflix brand. And it's kind of different from what other net, like you said, it's different from kind of the niche era of cable. Like USA had Characters Welcome, the Characters Welcome brand, and they kind of built a brand around blue sky, sunny shows. And the example I like to use with Netflix is HBO, they still kind of have that particular idea behind their programming. And, like, they would never have made Fuller House. Never. I think that's a fair statement. But even I'd say within, if we look at, at HBO there as well, it's it, for a long time I think there was a sense that it was some sort of, again, here in quotes, quality brand. But HBO was a lot of different things. HBO was the only one doing, in quotes, quality at the time. But they were also doing the late night and the sports and had kids programs. And so I think, I think it's useful moving forward to, to not expect the kind of brand strategy that we did in cable. Although with the emergence of, of portals such as CISO that are comedy branded, um, I could be wrong. But, and, or maybe there's just multiple versions of this business. But or maybe I, they just haven't figured out what their new brand is. I just wrote a piece on USA 
where I took a look at how their shift was changing, and Mr. Robot, very off-brand from what it used to be, but it might be an indicator of what's to come. That's true. But I think I think it's the subscription model might make it possible for Netflix and, and HBO to be very competitive without the kind of brand or branding that we've be, been, been familiar with. And related, the other thing that Sarandos talked about is how a viewer's algorithm drives what is suggested, which is something we generally know, um, rather than Netflix pushing a new show to everyone because, and this is the bit that's different, because they are so concerned about word of mouth. And so I really think the old television way of doing it is if you were launching a new show, if you were launching Jessica Jones and you had 10 million subscribers, you would put your brand new show as the first thing everyone would see. And I think that's the old thinking. It would be the dead ad, like when you log into Netflix, you see a banner at the top of the page for whatever Netflix is suggesting. They would put that for everybody. Right. And so what Sarando said is that actually they're so focused on having good word of mouth and they recognize that Jessica Jones isn't for everyone and they don't want the people for whom Jessica Jones is not the right show. They don't want them to watch it because they don't want them to put out bad word of mouth and to, you know, bring down rating, it's, it's uh, star rating or anything like that. And so the idea that instead of taking advantage of the possibility of pushing a show to their entire subscriber base, that they are being very selective and, and targeting so that the person who's most likely to like the show uh, recognizes it or finds it first, and with the idea that that will begin building successful word of mouth behind the show. And did he talk at all about viewing behaviors? Yes, and, and I was I was I was pleased to note um, because it's what I've been thinking about so much that that they are seeing a pattern of people watching one show at a time and tending to watch it in order, even if it's not serialized. And, and why that matters, I think, is that we're just at the beginning of seeing the way in which changing viewing behaviors will change the way television is made and scripted. Um, in terms of the craft of, of television storytelling. You know, so many conventions were built around the norms of the network era of trying to fit into that sort of 45-minute episode to build to those commercial breaks. And so television storytelling took on characteristics built on that form. And Netflix, you know, it doesn't have the commercials. And then the other thing it has is the ability for viewers to watch episodes back to back. And and so the way in which that, too, is beginning to change television storytelling is, is interesting to me. Yeah, the difference between shows made for binge viewing and shows made for week to week is, is starting to show up in Netflix's content. Think about Sense8. And I, I reviewed that show. And one of my big, I kind of took on the normal perspective or normal, typical old-time perspective, but uh, and kind of knocked the show a little bit because it was built to be watched 10 hours straight through. I stopped halfway. Very different experience and very different review from what it would have been had I finished it. I just had the same debate with some friends on Jessica Jones, and, and they had both watched it straight through, and, and it worked really well for them. Whereas I got, I was watching it basically in probably two episode blocks, and by four or five... I just I got frustrated with it because it, it it just it it wasn't following a narrative pattern I was familiar with and it just it just felt like where is this going and I gave up and so I think just because it's possible to view in these you know I don't think it 
perhaps makes sense to craft television to be viewed in 10, 13 hour sittings. Um, but I think this is a, a, a process of mediation now has begun between the changing ways viewers are able to watch and are choosing to watch and what a, the creators are thinking about when they make the programming. Well, we, we could definitely have this conversation for a lot longer, and maybe in a future episode we will, but let's move on to John Landgraf. Neither of us really noted a specific John Landgraf interview where we saw this is his perspective on television. Right. I've been using Landgraf a lot in, in the book project that I'm working on, a lot of different interviews. The television critics have taken to calling him the mayor of TV because he's been so provocative and yet grounded for a while. I think his session at TCA must have can't miss status at this point. When he went to TCA in the summer, he gave a whole speech and essentially ran a whole panel with the critics on what, what now is known as hashtag peak TV in the idea where there, there are a lot of scripted shows on the air right now. I believe FX Research put out the number 412 right. for 2015. And what was great about that is that he supported that with the data, and he came and brought the data, which then the critics could share. And, 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 and it is very clear, and it's not any, it's broken out by this is broadcast, this is cable, these are broadband services. And so it, it is, it's not just this argument he's saying uh, that there's more TV than ever, but really he empirically illustrates it. And I think that helped advance the debate and, and perhaps particularly what has given this notion of peak TV such legs. I mean, I even notice it. I, I believe I mentioned this in episode one. I notice it in my work as a critic because myself and my team at the daily, or and the team I work with at the daily, there's about eight of us. And we still can't cover everything that airs. We still have trouble mediating and picking out what's worth covering and what's not, because there is so much television in a given week. Right. And it just, as the business of television and the nature of television changes, so too must the nature of critics and, and reviewing. Uh, there have always been more books published in a, in a week or a year than critics can review. And critical practices have adapted and done just fine as a result. I think it's just the sense that uh, that there's this moment of change, that we've reached a point where these old practices can't continue. And so to me, it's exciting to see what new forms criticism will take and, and how the field of television criticism adapts to these new conditions. I think, I think it'll be really interesting to look at that in the future because we're kind of trying to mediate that now. But what else ha did John Lang has John Landgraf pointed out in his work that we found notable? Well, what I've, I like about Landgraf's work is that he sort of just drips in here and there these little pieces of data that exact are, are just so helpful and, and illuminating. For example, he revealed that 10 years ago, more than 50% of X's revenue came from linear spots or advertising, and now it's just 32%, and that he expects that decline to continue at about 1% a year going forward. Now, that's... now, just to note, it's not a decline in the revenue itself, it's a change in percentage, correct? Correct. That, yeah, so that it may also be a decline in, a, in amount. But what's, I think, really helpful about that is that's a perspective that it's really hard to have from outside to, to sort of know what the intricate balance sheets of these companies look like, because even though they often are doing things like reporting profits, uh, it's usually at a conglomerate level, not as anything as specific as, as a specific network. And so why it matters that ad support is now only 32% of a 
important cable channel like FX is that it illustrates that there has been a shift in the model. And so there's been a lot of uh, you know, concern about you know, what's going to happen to the cable channels. They're all going to die you know, as audiences move away and because there is a sense that advertising is moving away. But there has been much less attention to the fact that the revenue model has been changing and that revenue is coming from places that it didn't come from before. Subscription now, the fees that the cable providers are paying back to FX have become greater and greater and have, have made up for those losses. And does that number also include streaming dollars that are now coming in from services like Netflix and Amazon? Well, the streaming dollars, I think when they, we look at a balance sheet, that's most... They would go to the studio. It's going to a yeah. studio. But I think in there, the other thing that's important is the creation of something like FX Studios. And, and Landgraf elsewhere has an, a long interview talking about the motivation behind creating FX Studios, uh, why it particularly has been producing the shows that it has. It's, it's emphasized the comedies uh, and, and, and the particularity of, of comedy and the way in which actually... Comedy tends to be more valuable long-term than in the short run, and so the fact that FX didn't have a way to be re earning any money off of the intellectual property of the comedies that they were uh, running made comedy a more important target to move into initially. So again, these And that, that's also because of the syndication dollars. Comedy is much more easily sellable to a cable network. Like, it's easy to sell. It's easier to, for FX to sell It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia to syndication than it is for it to sell, say, The Shield. Right. And and the other thing he's noticed is how much more cheaply they've been able to produce comedies. So so again, you know, often it, it, it seems like not necessarily an interview about anything specific, but I, I've learned a lot reading uh, his interviews over the years. Absolutely. Now, we're going to move on to the last of our executives and maybe one of the more important ones. Uh, Les Moonves. Yes, Moonves has been in the game for, for a long time, and the International Business Times did a really smart article in the last few weeks. Often, in the moment, it can be frustrating to me because uh, so much of the coverage of television executives uh, you know, is, is focused on prognostication and guessing as to whether or not executives are making the right or the wrong bet. It was really nice to see a journalist go back and, and trace really a 20-year trajectory of Moonves's decision-making um, once the hits and misses are actually clear and, 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 and looking at it from that perspective. And yet, there really, with Moonves, there have been a lot more hits than there have misses. Amazingly so, and, and with really different strategies. And, and I think I've, what's most telling about this is how often things have not gone as expected. So when CBS and Viacom split uh, into separate tracking stocks in, in 2006... And this was when CBS was spun off the larger conglomerate of Viacom. Right. And so Viacom was the cable channels. And, and this was at a moment when, you know, MTV, Nickelodeon, comedy, they were, they were doing great. And the expectation was this would help those stocks because it was old broadcaster CBS dragging them down. I mean, CBS is also known for being the old broadcaster. Right. And, and, and you know, I think to, to pretty much everyone's surprise, the, the stocks have had really an opposite fate. Uh, and that CBS has done so well in that time period. And, and really, 
Viacom cable channels right now are, are among those that are struggling the most. Also, Moonves has been on top of, of a variety of changes. I mean, partly it was because of the position of power that CBS was in as the most watched broadcast network, but they were, he and, and, and the network were really responsible for being able to push for the retransmission fees that the broadcast networks now receive. Which now, a retransmission fee, just uh, to be more specific, is where a cable company like Comcast will pay the network for the right to broadcast their network. They can range anywhere from pennies for maybe some tiny cable channels to in the range of $6 for the for ESPN. Right. And so for a long time, the broadcast networks, instead of asking for money, they, they just managed to get new cable channels uh, for their conglomerate. Like but, ABC would push ESPN and then Disney Channel and then ABC Family. Right. And so CBS began the trend toward requiring payment um, in around 2006. And, and in just that decade, uh, the revenue that the broadcast networks have been able to draw from cable providers uh, has become as much as 20% of their, their annual revenue. So that, that's the, that, that has been huge money in a period of significant change and transition for these industries. And he's also been on top of streaming. He, cre- he was one of the first, or CBS was one of the first networks to create a network portal. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago with CBS All Access. Yeah, so it was also nice in the IBT article, they mentioned uh, some numbers uh, that there are 500,000 subscribers to CBS All Access, which is the first time I've, I've seen a number. I mean, I think it still remains to be seen whether the strategy of going it alone, which sort of CBS was late, one could say, to the streaming market because they didn't join ABC, NBC, and Fox in Hulu. Uh, but I think that there there is a meaningful question going forward whether uh, that Hulu strategy turns out to be valuable. Especially as CBS All Access kind of diversifies its own portfolio with a st- like they're launching it with probably the biggest property CBS has, a Star Trek show. Right, and and we see the beginning of the use of exclusivity. And whether or not uh, CBS keeps that exclusive on CBS All Access, I think, remains to be seen. But I think what all of this uh, illustrates is is the way CBS has made a number of decisions contrary to the popular opinion um, at the time. And and it was it was fascinating to see all of these moves and decisions laid out and and how they have turned out over time. Les Moonves also did an interview with the Los Angeles Times, and one of the concepts that they brought up there, which I was really fascinated by, um, is something that's kind of been happening over the past few summers, where CBS will put a show like Under the Dome on the air, and it will be profitable before it even hits the air from selling it internationally. And with Under the Dome specifically, they made a massive deal with Amazon, where Amazon would get the episodes a few days after they were broadcast on TV. That's a nice way to tie it back because part of what that strategy allowed was for, you know, it was a different approach to television storytelling. One of the reasons why uh, television wasn't viewed as artistic was because of the the nature of the economic reward. Like The way you make more money in television is to keep doing more episodes. And so that does lead things to get kind of stale over time. And so this idea of the contained series uh, that runs, you know, we're seeing it more and more now with anthology series as well. Again, this is a creative form that existed early in television, but that we hadn't seen for a long time and has really just come back in the last few years. And so again, that different strategy of of trying to sell internationally and to sell to a streaming service to pay for something up front 
you know, that that only works because it was a contained season it, it, or a contained series that wouldn't work in the same way if it were an ongoing series and no one knew exactly how long it would run for. So although Under the Dome did end up running three seasons before getting canceled. Right. And so all of these models are, are, are flexible. Um, but uh, I, I still say whenever there's a limited series announcement like the X-Files, it's really let's see how this goes. And maybe if it works, we'll do more. Right, but even that's different than, you know, 22 episodes of the same procedural. It's, you know, it's just on and on and on. So I'd, I'd more welcome something going away and coming back when it's creatively recharged um, or having only a 13-episode or 7-episode run than like trying to grind John up 22. Like what is doing with Fargo and Louie, where Fargo gets a year and a half between seasons and Louis C.K. is essentially on the Larry David deal, where he will come back when he's good and ready. So it all comes back to the increased flexibility and diversity that is evident in, in the way that the television business is, is running these days. Absolutely. And that, that covers all our articles. Yeah. So I, I, this perhaps was a bit of a love letter. Maybe we can consider it a, a belated Valentine episode. But compared with the days a, a decade ago of, of execs you know, getting up in public and saying things like they want to criminalize DVR ownership... Uh, and otherwise just ignoring the way that audiences were were trying to engage with content and really wanting to uh, hear and see different kinds of stories. There's just a lot here that suggests an, an interesting and exciting turn for the business. Absolutely. Now we're going to move on to our closing segment. What are we watching this week? So Amanda and I actually walked in the room with the same show. So, Amanda, what are you watching this week? I'm watching American Crime. It, oh, yeah. It, American I caught up with it this past week, and man, is that show something. Yeah, we. I'd, I'd been uh, collecting the episodes so that I could watch them more or less consecutively, and, and the DVR started getting a little bit full, and so I started into them. I'm not sure how many more episodes it has to it, go. It's three after this, this uh, week. I'm going to have to end up waiting for episodes. But it's it, it it it's just it's been stunning. I didn't watch season one. I sort of heard about season I one. I watched part of the season one premiere, but I never finished followed it through. Right. So I, I intend now to go back. It's an anthology, so it, it, it's an entirely new story every time. But I, I've just been really impressed, and not only in terms of not it's not at all what I expected from a, a broadcast network, but. It is so sophisticated in its exploration of every aspect of identity. And it, it's a really complex issue they're tackling this season. They're tackling kind of the intersection of sexual assault and sports, which is something, if you follow college football news, it, it kind of reminded me of the Jameis Winston case. Yeah, I, 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 I'm just floored by sort of the, the way in which... Feminist theories of intersectionality are being brought to life uh, in in really compelling television storytelling. There's sexuality, there's gender, there's race, there's class, and it's it's all being done in in surprising and really thought provoking ways. I mean, I without spoiling, I I finished episode seven was the last episode I watched, and man, the way they pulled off with something just the <laughs> masterclass in editing that this show is putting on in terms of just. When you watch the show, like they use the way they use close-ups to kind of make you feel uncomfortable and unsettle you, they'll put these deep emotional moments in tight close-up, and then in editing, where they had a moment where it was a cut, and once they made that cut, it was just it, it floored me. It yeah. absolutely floored me. 
It's the best thing I've seen in a while, so I'm, I'm looking forward to finishing. So am I. Well, thank you for joining us. We'll be back again in two weeks. And I also want to give a very special thank you to Zach Wall, who designed the logo for our podcast, which you can see in iTunes. You can find more information on our podcast, including how to subscribe and links to our RSS and iTunes feeds at amandalots.com. You can follow Amanda Lots on Twitter at... Dr. TV Lots. And you can follow me on Twitter at Alex Entner. That's Alex, I-N-T-N-E-R. Thank you so much for listening.